endured unspeakable loss. Survived on his wits while hiding out in a series of secret buildings and secret rooms who engaged in outlandish adventures. And then when he thought it was all over and he could live as a free man at last, the communists took over and he found himself engaged in a series of cloak and dagger escapades as he set out to escape Europe once and for all. In my book, Not a Real Enemy, the true story of a Hungarian Jewish man's fight for freedom, I tell my father's story. I don't want to give too much away because I hope you'll read about his journey and find out find out that it's as amazing as I did, but I do want to talk about some of the feelings that his story inspired. The first is loneliness. Loneliness. We all know what it is to feel alone, even when surrounded by others. I can't imagine how lonely my dad must have felt when he was forced to leave his family at the age of 19. He'd never even spent a night without them. And after his first escape from the forced labor camp, after a long and clumsy all-out foot race for his own freedom, forced to hide for hours in the cold and wintry thicket of the Caspian foothills, I have no doubt my dad was scared and lonely. He was just a kid, a kid who knew that he'd be killed if he was caught. And so he risked being eaten alive by bears or wolves rather than risk another night of the guards' brutality. Yet loneliness was something he knew well. As he was growing up in Hungary as an only child, he was bullied for being a Jew, for not being Jewish enough when he lived among the Orthodox, for living in the wrong neighborhood, for not fitting in. Let me read to you an excerpt from the book. My father had just arrived at the labor camp and recognizes a friend from school. Thank God for Frank, Urban thought. He had never needed anyone like he felt he needed Frank at the moment. Frank would not just be a familiar face in the midst of this horrible ordeal. His common sense and leadership were just the thing Irvin needed now that he was under the control of these brutes. A friend like Frank could help him get through it, he was certain. The question was, what did he have to offer Frank besides mere friendship? He prayed he'd find the answer because in that flicker of a second in which he recognized Frank's face throughout the stable's darkness, the intensity of his need for just such a friend swept over him. I'll be damned, Irvin called out to his old friend. Frank Moore, come here, I've got something for you. And with that, he unwrapped all he had to offer, a few crescent cookies and some cold pierogies. It wasn't much, but in that cold and lonely moment in the stable built for livestock, it was the most generous gift Irvin could provide to the friend who gave him more than mere camaraderie. Having Frank beside him gave him hope he would survive. After the war, as the communists watched his every move, listened in on his private conversations, monitored his movements, imprisoned his friends and colleagues, turning one against the other, recruiting spies among his fellow medical students, then among his colleagues, he learned to remain silent. Even after marrying my mother, who was herself a medical student, they were forced into a solitude together. No one could be trusted, yet no one could survive alone. One lesson I learned from my father was that loneliness is a part of the human condition, but it needn't mark us as outsiders. We must depend on others, even as we do with caution. Our loneliness is an existential state, but ultimately we are inextricably linked to the lives and fates of others. And importantly, we are ultimately never alone. God is by our side every step of the way, even our most isolating moments. Another feeling my father's story brings up is humiliation. Humiliation. Day by day, the indignities my dad, his family, and friends endured mounted. They were told where to stand and how to stand, where to live and how to live, denied the right to own a radio, denied the right to practice medicine, denied the right to work. For my father's fathers, for my father's father, these humiliations came after years of struggle to become a doctor, to acquire wealth, to raise his family in a grand home, 
where they were well, well respected. But no sooner had he achieved these honors that they were chipped away. First, he was told he couldn't practice medicine, so he became a dentist. Then he was told he couldn't work, so that his son must be sent to hard labor, that he could not mix with Gentiles, that he must wear that ridiculous yellow star marking this unworthy, and ultimately, that he couldn't live. My father's own humiliations mounted, but he would not let his humiliation define him. He refused to embrace the identity the Nazis and later the communists tried to impose upon him. Each of us endured our own humiliations, and yet how they pale in comparison to what our Jewish ancestors endured. How much stronger will we become when we accept our humiliation as a test of our endurance, of our own sense of who we are and our place in society? Only by forging our own identities do we cast off those identities others may confer upon us. Here's another excerpt from a scene in the labor camp where my father had been subjected to repeated humiliations and abuse. Though the men had hoped that over time the guards would be kinder to them, once they got to know them and saw them as fellow men, the opposite proved true. It was as if the more the guards came to know them, the more emboldened they became to abuse them. Perhaps because they learned that no act, no matter how brutal, would be punished, whereas, my, whereas any kindness they showed would be. Whatever the cause, the guards delighted in their cruelty. When the men were working in the deep wells, the guards would amuse themselves by urinating on them, turning the holes they dug into veritable latrines. Yet the humiliation didn't bother the men so much because the more they were peed on, the more satisfied the guards were they inflicted sufficient degradation on their charges, thereby lessening the chance of a beating. It was the beating the men feared the most. There's also the theme of integrity, which is alive on every page. Integrity. My father would never have survived had he not had integrity. Throughout the book, my father's integrity and that of several others proves to be the saving grace that helped him and kept others alive. My grandfather as well proved to be a man of integrity and many scenes show how his integrity, which in the end could not save him nor my grandmother, saved the life of his son, if not directly, then indirectly by how he had raised my father. When dad had been sent to the labor service, my grandparents were worried that he would not survive because he'd been so spoiled, that he had no experience with hard work. But they underestimated how far integrity would take Irvin, who came to realize that it wasn't just his own life that was, a, that was at stake, but that of his friends and fellow prisoners. His determination that no one would die because of his actions, his failures, or his mistakes compelled my father to find the strength to carry on, to work harder, and to rise above the horror. Because of his integrity, others learned to trust my dad, and because of the integrity of others, he survived. In our world today, it's easy to despair, but I'll bet there's not one of you who hasn't been blessed by the integrity of another, who hasn't demonstrated your own integrity when it most mattered. Learning my father's story inspired in me to always act with integrity and to live up to his own high standards of how we treat others and ourselves. As they reached the town center, the men noticed masses of marching military columns, occasionally interrupted by armored trucks or horse-drawn wagons. The striking difference between the two, one a symbol of power and might and igniting fear in the hearts of the men, the other a symbol, a symbol of simplicity and self-reliance, conjuring peace and safety, if not a world before the war, caused the men to reassess whether they ought to be so bold as to approach anyone at all. The alternative is we become thieves just to eat, Irvin said. And I'd rather bank on people having a good heart than darkening my own. I'm with you, Frank said, as he was a man of integrity himself, but we need to be careful. Agreed, Irvin said, just as a couple of well-dressed men came out of a building they were passing. Good afternoon, soldiers, one of the men said, tipping his hat. 
The other did the same, and no, no sooner had Irvin and Frank returned the greeting that one of the men asked, what brings you to our town? We don't have many sol soldiers here other than those trucks and tanks that pass us by. Irvin gave him their cover story, which promptly bought, brought more questioning. The more he answered the questions, Frank stepping back and keeping conspicuously quiet, so as not to contradict or confuse the explanation, the more nervous Irvin became. What had become a friendly greeting was quickly advancing to a suspicious interrogation. Look, the man, the more vocal one said in a lowered tone, stepping away from the street and closer to the building, as if it were a safer place to be, away from the passersby. No one gets lost out here. You're Jews and you've made a run for it. Finally, there's hope, hope. My father was a soft, spoiled only child who hadn't done a lick of work in his life. He didn't even have to make his own bed. There was a maid to do that when he was sent to the Nazi controlled labor service, a brutal work camp for Jews who were considered too inferior for national service and only fit for the most arduous, unpleasant tasks like digging deep ditches in the dead of winter, laying the ground for an airport strip with their bare hands, marching across the country in scorching heat or icy winters, all with barely enough food to keep them alive. As time went on, small graces helped the men to endure the realities of their fate. Irvin learned from Mike's father, who inexplicably was allowed a rare visit and brought news from the outside world that the guards could be bribed. Though the guards never spoke directly to the men unless it was to deliver orders or rebukes and never looked them in the eye, through the small acts of bribery, a silent contract had developed. Some young men received a bit more food, a few less punishments, even extra clothing. Fortunately, it wasn't long before Irvin learned that his own father had met with the guards, offering free dental treatment for their families as well as cash, and Irvin received a visit from one of the guards not long after. Wolf. Irvin sprang to attention, ready to withstand whatever was coming. He looked up and saw Janos, the guard who served them sausages at the earlier camp, jerk his head for Irvin to come to him. Irvin complied, standing at attention before the funny-looking man. Janos had tiny eyes before, tiny eyes buried in a face so pockmarked, he looked wow. like, he almost looked like a, bur a burn victim. He was quite hideous, but Irvin concluded it may have been his ugliness, which rendered him more sympathetic than the other days. Could, could you bring me in Still, my coffee? He was a guard, and Irvin had long since concluded that even the kindest of guards held power over him, and no one holds power without employing it. Thus, when Janos commanded Irvin to approach, Irvin was as cautious as he was obedient. Your parents want you to have this, he said, his voice low and neither kind nor cruel. He handed Irvin a small paper packet as discreetly as if he were passing a valet a well-earned tip and turned and barked orders to a nearby group of men. Irvin used that diversion to sneak back to his bunk and open the packet. Inside was a chain of gold with a simple four-leaf clover charm, a small ruby embedded in the center. Irvin had never before received jewelry from his parents, but this golden four-leaf clover was the most treasured gift he had ever opened, not for it being gold, but for being a symbol of their optimism and hope he'd be home soon. He turned the charm over and saw the day of the charm engraved. In remembrance from your parents, 1943 X4. A tear fell from Irvin's face, followed by another, then another. 1943, the year he'd last seen his family, X was the Roman numeral for the month of October and four for the day he departed just a few months earlier. The tears fell heavily now as he realized how momentous that day had been and how much that date was etched not just upon the golden charm, but upon his parents' hearts. Coincidentally, or possibly not, my bar mitzvah was on October 4th, 32 years later. The despair my father and his fellow laborers felt was palpable. 
But in the midst of that despair, deep and lasting bonds were formed with his friends and fellow prisoners and small tokens like a simple kindness, a shared bit of food, a funny story late at night brought the comfort and glimmer of hope that each needed to endure the, un the unendurable. In these troubled times in our own nation, times that in some ways echo the early days of the rise of fascism and in other ways don't even come close, we would do well to embrace that hope. We live surrounded by comforts and kindness, yet how easily we, we lose sight of all that we have. Reading stories like that of my father can teach us to find hope in the darkest moments. For my father, hope kept him alive when he felt dead. Hope kept him going, giving him the courage he needed to dare his most dangerous escapes, and hope gave him the certainty that his pain would pass. We are living in troubling times and the rise of anti-Semitism in our nation and across the globe is shockingly great. For the rise of anti-Semitism or the Hungarian Revolution in 1956 that my father quite literally stumbled upon as he made his way home, the lessons of the past are aligned with us. Let's think about these lessons as we live our lives in freedom. I do hope you'll read my father's story because I have no doubt that you will find in the story the same inspiration that he brought to me, inspiring me to never give up hope, to live a life of integrity, to never let anyone else shame or define me, to never forget that our life comes to tragedies, some so great they are unspeakable, our future is our own to make. I'd like to tell you that once the Nazis were gone, Urban's life got better. And though he did get into medical school, finally, and did find employment as an obstetrician, life under the communists proved to be another challenge. There is a saying, the crocodiles have gone, but the alligators have arrived. And I think that pretty much sums up what was going on in Hungary during those years. Dad even paraphrased himself, out of the frying pan into the fire. One only needs to look at Ukraine to realize that things haven't changed much, eh? In closing, I'd like to leave you these thoughts. Although few people know the story of what happened to the Hungarian Jews during the Holocaust, nearly half a million were deported, as my grandparents were, most going straight to Auschwitz where they were killed. Almost all who survived are the ones like my father who were serving in those deplorable labor camps where beatings, starvation, and death marches were common. In Not a Real Enemy, I've tried to tell the story of the Hungarian Jews during the Holocaust and their fate under Stalin's communism. Every Jew who lived there during those times has their own story to tell, and this is just one among the over 825,000 Jews who lived in Hungary prior to the war. As my father's story shows, there are fine lines between good and evil, war and peace, love and hate, hope and despair, tolerance and prejudice, right and wrong. I wish that the lines were much thicker rather than so fine, but I am immersely proud to know where my family stood. Through all those harrowing years, my father exhibited immeasurable determination to not only survive against steep odds, but once he had survived such unspeakable atrocities, once he learned of his parents' fate and the fates of so many other people he cared about, either during the reign of the Nazis or the reign of the communists, dad was determined not to be destroyed. The very fact of his survival became a pledge to God and to the memory of his parents to fully live his life. When I started out on this journey four years ago, I had no idea what I was getting into, despite the many stories that my parents shared with me and others. And I hope I have done their story and history justice. And I do hope that you'll buy my book and share your thoughts with me. I want my father's story to do more than just entertain you. I want it to inspire you in these difficult times so that you will know, just as my father came to know, that you are stronger than you realize, and our nation is as well. Thank you so much for your time and attention. And now I give the mic back to our host, and we'll do Q&A later, I am told. There you go. Thank you very much. And I am so uh, pleased to have you. Rob with us and 
for everyone who's with us some inside baseball. Uh, Rob presented his first uh, presentation today with the deck. And so it was a beautiful uh, work from you and from Sia who was with us. So thank you uh, so much and, and I appreciate it. And I'm going to now make our next introduction speaker and that is Jenna uh, Zark. So just bear with me a second. And um, okay, Jenna is from Minneapolis. She's a columnist, lyricist, playwright and novelist. Jenna Zarg, when a friend asked if she wanted to write articles about Jewish life for her new online magazine, she thought no, but surprised herself by saying yes. I never had any in special insights to how to live Jewishly. The opposite. In fact, when my friend approached me, I think part of me wanted to write about what I had been living through. I had an un unexpected divorce from a cantor who worked in a synagogue, which led me to a path full of undergrowth just waiting to chirp me up. I didn't have the first idea of how to manage being a single mom, nor did I know how to raise my son alone in the world where everyone I knew was a couple or becoming one. And yet, and yet, I began to see the Jewish holidays and rituals I'd grown up with as a kind of anchor to keep me from falling flat on my face. That's where I started and why I started a small group of essays for an online magazine called the Minneapolis Twin Cities Jew Folk brought me here and became the story you're reading. Jenna shows that we can be very brave and vulnerable at the same time. The memoir is filled with sadness, humor, fascinating details about the Jewish faith and a wonderful use of language. She closes one of her chapters by telling a story of her young son playing a symphony of pots and pans. She realizes in that moment they were alive, like the fruits of Jerusalem. Behind each writer, spring arrives and stories won't wait. They're here like the two of us waiting on the dinner and the dawn. I was hooked. The image of her and her young son in the kitchen will not be forgotten. Stories won't wait has become a mantra for me a gift from Jenna and is a lovely book. So Jenna, I am going to uh, share my screen with you. And give me a second. Let me get your PowerPoint up. And there we go, second. So welcome Jenna, why don't you take the mic so uh, we can see you and hear you. Jenna, are you with us? Jenna? Do you may have to unmute yourself, Jenna? There we go. Hi. All right, very good. Glad to hear you now. That's great. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm so excited to be here today, and I want to thank Jeffrey for inviting me and for putting this show together as many times as he does. He's just amazing. I want to talk about transitions, not only because I think that's what my book, Crooked Lines, is about, but because we all go through them, and it's one of the hardest things we have to do. I thought we'd start with a little background to give you an idea of who I am, how the book came into being. 
a year or two after graduating from college, I was pursuing an acting career and met and married another actor who I encountered at an audition. We lived in New York City for a while and then he decided to become a synagogue cantor. His first job was in Hammond, Indiana, not far from Chicago. I'd always been intrigued by Chicago, but moving uprooted me from everything I'd ever known. That was a huge transition, my first. I decided at that point to change my career to playwriting. The next transition I faced was moving yet again. After making friends and finding a playwriting home at Chicago Dramatist Theater, we moved to the Twin Cities and I became a member of Playwright Center. Then we were expecting and I became a mom. That was an even huger transition and still reverberates with me now. About two years later, the third transition arrived. And if you read Crooked Lines, you'll know that meant a divorce. That was pretty huge too. Somewhere between moving and being a parent. I didn't have the first idea of managing how to be a single mom. For myself, uncoupling from a cantorial family, creating a whole new shul family was like learning to walk again. I had to find a shul where I'd feel comfortable as a single mom, where I could bring my son and where I connected with the rabbi and the services. I was lucky to find a shul called Beth Jacob where Rabbi Morris Allen gave me a grand welcome. And he also gave moving ser sermons where I felt very connected to what he was talking about. There were also enough hippies and new agers to make an artist like me feel at home. And no one was even close to being a perfectionist. Next slide. I was also lucky to find a new friend named John who happened to be an observant Catholic. We were both going through uncouplings and looking to our religions to help us get through. John was fascinated by what I told him about Jewish observance in a good way, meaning he wasn't trying to convert me. And he was the most supportive friend. What I also began to do, and here's where my transition started moving into transformation, is to look at the holidays and rituals observed by Jewish people much more closely than I ever had before. I wanted to find out what those holidays meant to me, and more importantly, what they could mean if I really opened up to them. Early on in this journey, I found myself with nowhere to go on Rosh Hashanah. My friend John decided he would be my Rosh Hashanah guy, like a Shabbos guy, and take me out to a restaurant for the holiday. I know it was weird, but somehow or other it worked, as they say in Hollywood. I'd like to read you some of this chapter, which is part of Crooked Lines. It's called Rosh Hashanah Restaurant. And as I picked up the menu, I thought, this is probably not going to get me into any books of life. But John, who is a lawyer, said if anyone was judging, I could try and explain the mitigating circumstances. I had been in Minnesota just a few years, and most of the Jewish people I knew were congregants in my former husband's synagogue. I was divorced barely two months, 
and didn't want to spend the evening staring at the walls while my son was with his father. So, muffalettas. It may not have been the best way to observe the High Holy Days, but one cannot always choose the time of one's transformation. And in the last few months, I felt I had transformed enough. Salad, yes, it wasn't terribly kosher to be in a restaurant, but I was still attempting to be. I tried to explain this to John, starting with the separation of dairy and meat, moving to the kinds of meat you could have, and then separating meat and dairy dishes. A Jewish director had once told me, because God wanted us to be vegetarian, kosher laws were created to annoy you every time you wanted meat, I recalled. I brought up the Book of Life, and we discussed the afterlife. As a Catholic, John was puzzled by the Jews' approach, which seemed to be, there is, there isn't one, and left him completely confused. Wasn't the Book of Life proof there was some eternal one inviting people to heaven? I always thought it meant extended another year and you wouldn't die in horrific circumstances. But then these 10 days have always confused me too. I like the idea of starting over, mending one's life and relationships. On the other hand, the notion of punishing those who don't repent through illness or death leaves me with deep ambivalence about the judgment. If we see it as allegory, I said, what's the point, John asked, why do any of it if it's only allegorical? I don't know, I sighed. John laughed and we both said, Anyway, at the same time, I told him to go first. Slide three. Well, there's a saying about how God paints in crooked lines, said John. It's never a straight line, not straightforward. I like that, I said. We ordered vegetarian and I turned the forks and spoons over, trying to decide if we were really meant to be judging ourselves. If your marriage derailed, what part did you play in breaking it? If you're sitting in a restaurant instead of at the home of a Jewish friend, what can you do to make it count as a real Jewish holiday? Then my friend pulled something out of his satchel. Since it's New Year's, he said, I thought you should have a present. I looked up in surprise. We don't do gifts at New Year's, I started to say. But he cut me off, saying something about his way of celebrating while handing me a present and an envelope. I opened the gift to find a framed photograph of me at his daughter's birthday party, both arms raised with a big smile. You look so happy here, John said, and I leaned forward to look at the picture, surprised to see my expression of joy, something I had not expected to feel yet it was clearly present. Anyway, I thought you should have this, he said, looking at the envelope. When I opened it, I found a check made out to me for $100. What's this? Anne Frank, he replied, and I knew immediately what he meant. A few years before, a few weeks before, John had written a column about Anne Frank for the St. Paul Pioneer Press. It was about how she couldn't be lumped in with other victims of other wars or even genocides. How one size does not fit all. 
because we are all individuals whose stories are not transferable to other agendas. At the time the column was written, newspapers paid on occasion to run them. So John received $100 for his work. He knew when I moved out of my former home, I left behind my first family sukkah. I wanted to buy you a new sukkah for your brand new life, he said. I had to bite my lip to stop the tears from filling my eyes. So, Muffaletta, if you are ever divorced and find yourself alone on Jewish New Year's, you do not have to go there. But if you do, you might find a fresh start between the garlic spread and the salad, or the one who paints in crooked lines, leading us to the people we are supposed to meet. This one brought me a sukkah and a picture of me smiling, perhaps an early hint of future joys and a high holy day I could write about in a book of my own. Now we can move to slide four. Crooked Lines is divided into three sections. The first and largest section of the book is about trying to raise my son Jewishly after a divorce and to find a place in the Jewish community where everyone I knew seemed to be in pairs. Second part of the book focuses on finding a new love in my life and dealing with the fact that my new partner wasn't Jewish. The story involves looking at the Purim story of Esther and a decision that came about because of the Indigo Girls. I'll share a bit of that with you now. It's called Indigo Girls and Intermarriage, a Magic Carpet Tale. We sat on the rug in the middle of the floor, and I told him we were on a magic carpet ride. Like Aladdin, I said, we were going up, up, up over the city. And once we were high enough, my son could say anything he wanted and it would be okay. I promised not to get upset at anything he said. We closed our eyes and pretended we were flying and we were both very good at pretending. And then my five-year-old looked at me and said exactly what he wanted to say. I want you to get married, mom. His father and I had been divorced almost two years and his father had remarried. My son loved his stepmother and enjoyed spending time with her. I realized he may have thought our little home too quiet, or maybe he just wanted a more traditional family at our place too. I created these magic carpet times so he could tell me whatever was on his mind. I wanna get married too, Nate, I said, but we have to be careful. We can't just marry anyone. We have to pick the right person. We're a package deal, you and me. So we go together and whoever we marry has to love both of us. Nate looked at me nodding and I could only hope he understood. Some days later, we were in the car and he sighed. I want you to get married, mommy, he said, but we have to be careful. We have to pick the right person. We can't just marry anyone. I didn't know whether to, to laugh or cry, but it felt good to know at least he was listening to me. And though I wasn't ready to say so, I had most likely found someone. And that someone was Pete. 
He was not a Jewish man, but he was a wonderful man. I believed he would be fine if we invited him into our Jewish home. And though he wasn't kosher, he was vegetarian, which is almost the same thing, right? Next slide. If you were to ask me why I made the decision to marry him, I could say a lot of things. I was impressed by his gentleness, humor, his genuine love for Nate, and his patience with both of us. Mainly though, my decision was not rationally driven. It came about because of the Indigo Girls. Pete knew I liked them. When we first started seeing each other, he asked me to go to a concert they were giving at the University of Minnesota. We got there only to find the concert was sold out. At that point, I decided the universe was trying to tell me I should not be with this man. I turned away from the box office just as a dark-haired woman entered the ticket booth. She looked directly at Pete, and I remember thinking she likes him. Only instead of flirting, she asked if we were trying to see the Indigo Girls. Yes, and you're all sold out, I said impatiently. And then, what must be the start of some movie script somewhere, the woman smiled impishly and motioned us to come closer. That night, Pete and I had front row seats at the Indigo Girls. So much for the universe. One year later, Pete proposed and I said yes. I still had one more hurdle and no idea how to clear it. How do you create a wedding ceremony without a rabbi that honors your heritage when you're not getting married to a Jew? The wedding was planned for the middle of the Sukkot holiday with a civil judge officiating. I knew we would have no Hebrew and no ceremonial crunching of a wine glass like most Jewish marriages, but I wanted Nate and everyone else to know we would keep our traditions and Pete was going to be a part of them too. I talked to the judge about the holiday. She said she'd think about it and get back to me. Next slide. On the morning of our wedding, Pete and I faced each other on the balcony of the University Club in St. Paul. The judge compared our marriage to a sukkah. It is not permanent, but it is the promise of a home, she said. Its openness pledges that there will be no secrets. The sukkah does not promise love or hope or pledges. will keep out weather or catastrophe but its lines are a sketch for what might be. You have come together to celebrate your future, the making of a home. We are reminded that the only real thing about a home is the people in it who love and choose to be together, to be a family. So may it be for you now. After the ceremony, we celebrated with Kalah and said the Motsi blessing for bread. And though it was not by any means a Jewish wedding, I think the imagery of the Sukkah stayed with us throughout the years we've been together. I think Nate would also tell you he was raised Jewishly in a Jewish home. What this means for you and whatever weddings you may encounter, I don't know. I'm not recommending you do what I did. In fact, I think it's easier for Jews to marry other Jews because we're a minority culture in a not always hospitable world. 
but I do believe it's possible to bring your traditions with you wherever you go and to live them. And if you can manage to pick the right person, the universe has a way of responding, putting you up front and center with life and maybe even the indigo girls. So yeah, I wrote this because I didn't want you to think religion and faith are easy for me. I was raised by Jewish parents, but they weren't particularly religious. They went to synagogue on the bigger holidays, but my father had barely any religious knowledge and my mother didn't keep a kosher home. The third part of the book involves the journey I took as my parents grew older, what I learned about their lives and how that informed the last years we had together. I wanted to share the story of how I decided to give my dad a Jewish burial, even though he wasn't observant in the slightest. I knew part of that came from his youth when his rabbi didn't allow him to be bar mitzvahed at the shul because his parents were poor and couldn't pay their dues. Slide seven, if there is one. I'm only going to read a portion of this chapter because it's a longish one, but you can actually hear the chapter at my website on the Crooked Lines page at jennazark.com. It's called Son of the Faith. He was gone. I was alone. I was holding his hand. In a few minutes, I would be calling the funeral director would ask if I wanted a Jewish burial for my father. That meant he would be given a ritual washing by members of the sacred burial society called Hevra Kadisha in Hebrew. I would have to say yes or no. My father was not even remotely religious and had not been since the rabbi at his depression era synagogue denied him a bar mitzvah because his family couldn't pay dues. Bar Bat Mitzvah literally means son daughter of the commandments or the faith. The ceremony is about joining the community. Dad had always regretted missing out on it. I looked down at my father's still warm hand, trying to decide what to do. I could see him as a skinny, freckly 12 year old, blue eyes widening as he took in the rabbi's words. My father would have been smiling because he didn't like letting people know when they heard him. He would have shrugged and nodded quickly, turning away. I tried to remember how I felt when I first heard of the burial society. Like many American Jews, I grew up knowing nothing of how our tradition treats the dead. And my introduction had not been an auspicious one. When my former husband, Mitch, first became a canner, we moved to Hammond, Indiana from New York, where we had been struggling actors and writers. He started his first job at a Hammond synagogue, and I began to write plays. Mitch joined the Burial Society almost immediately, which came as a shock to me. He described it almost offhandedly as a group of special people who take care of the dead by washing and dressing them. The washing called tahara in Hebrew has been performed since ancient times in our community. It sounded weird and a little frightening. Besides, 
beyond seeing one non-Jewish friend in his coffin, I had never been close to death. I wasn't sure how to react and asked him why he was joining because he had never been in a war or had other intense life and death encounters. He thought joining the society would be an important experience for starting a career in the clergy. He also believes the society was a group willing to do what no one else would, and that intrigued him. I thought he was nuts. My mother and friends also thought he was nuts, but how could I tell him that? When I pressed for more details, he said he had something to show me. Instead of taking me to a funeral home, he brought me to a hair salon, where to my surprise, he introduced me to the owner, who shook my hand and offered me a free haircut. I watched as she pumped my seat higher and placed her scissors out on the counter. Her name was Nancy, and she was a member of Mitch's congregation. She was close to my age in her late 20s with a fountain of long curly hair, tight black leather pants, and long red nails. I heard your husband is a member of Hever Kadisha, she said, as she lifted my hair while grinning into the mirror. Then she leaned over and whispered, me too. I looked up at her as she smiled. Those slender white fingers with perfectly polished nails were going out at night and washing dead people. What's more, they were people Nancy knew. As she started talking, cutting and layering, I knew I had to learn more. Slide eight. The Hemer Kadisha comprises volunteers from every community and profession. They're hairstylists, secretaries, lawyers, wives and mothers, fathers, bakers, salesmen, nurses, and students. They can be called any time, day or night, because in Jewish law, the dead must be buried within 24 hours whenever possible. They give up weekends, evenings, and holidays to do this work. Typically, the washings are done by funeral home staff because the volunteer pool for groups like these is drying up. But in some communities like Hammond or Minneapolis, sacred burial societies are coming together at the request of local rabbis and retrieving the Hever Kadisha from obscurity. Each member will tell you something different about why he or she joined. Nancy became a member to try and make sense of her aunt's death from cancer. The ritual she described was one I would to come to know some years later. The washing takes place on a platform and is done with a washcloth and basin. The person on the slab is generally covered with a white sheet or cloth. Society members wash their hands three times in a ritual basin and say a prayer asking for kindness for the body. Then little by little, each body part is uncovered and lovingly carefully watched a foot, a hand, a forehead, a shoulder. After each part is uncovered to be washed with a washcloth, it is covered again to be sure the person who is dead retains the highest amount of dignity. At the same time, prayers are said from the Song of Songs. Again, you can hear the entire chapter at the Crooked Lines page on my website. 
slide nine. In closing, I want to say that I wrote Crooked Lines for you, for everyone who wants to know a little bit more about the holidays they're celebrating, and for families and anyone who still needs a place at the table, especially at our holiday tables. I believe the holidays and rituals we share as Jews are not only pieces of our past. They are re relevant to who we are now, and they create a stronger future while bringing us together. I hope Crooked Lines gets you to think a little more about the holidays or rituals that mean the most to you and how you can celebrate them with your kids, your friends, and even people who aren't Jewish, but who may be curious about our religion. The thing that I really want you to remember is to sit down at those holidays tables because you have an important place there, your own. I also want to invite you to visit the creative and award section of my website to see some of the six honors and awards Crooked Lines received. And to thank you for listening to me today. Again, please visit jennazark.com. And thank you, everyone. Thank you also to my publisher, Kohler Books, for giving me a traditional contract and to everyone who's here today. Thanks again. Uh, thank you, uh, Jenna. And for those of you um, who are first meeting Jenna and, and hearing about her work, I had the privilege and honor to interview uh, Jenna in the Obligation of Memory uh, interview series. and. Those uh, interviews are on the uh, Jewish Culture and Holocaust Remembrance YouTube channel, so I, I point you in that direction. It's a beautiful series of, of interviews uh, covering the personal side, and this is an unusual program that I uh, to bring to our group. Jenna and Jenna knows that, um, but it was so special, and I hope all of you in the audience um, got what I have got out of it, is that there is a lot here to be Jewish. And so thank you again, Jenna, for bringing you. And we'll bring you back for the Q&A. And I'm going to now introduce our third speaker um, for this evening or this afternoon. And let me get back here. And that is Ruth uh, Samuel Tenenholtz. And uh, Ruth is uh, residing in Israel. She was born in the Netherlands less than one year after World War II. Her parents and older sisters were Shoah survivors. She lives now in Israel and is a proud matriarch of a large family, including children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And many years as a professor of English literature, she is retired and, is turned, and has turned to writing. This is her third book. Land of Many Bridges is a, is a must-read. Bella Ruth Samuel Tenenholtz has written a book that is unique in Holocaust writing. There are infinite number of books on this topic, ranging from memoirs, historical, fictional, eyewitness, testimonials, autobiographical, analytical, and academic. On very rare occasions, one book manages to combine aspects of all of these and give even the most experienced student of the Holocaust a new perspective or insight. Land of Many Bridges is one of those special books. Samuel Tenenholz tells the story of one Dutch family who managed to survive the Nazi invasion of the Netherlands. Every Holocaust story is unique, one that includes details of tenacity, bravery, and includes both heroics and betrayals. But the telling of this particular one, Ruth, is exceptionally riveting. And so I welcome Ruth 
to our program. And Ruth, um, if you don't mind, uh, let me stop the screen share here. Let me, uh, I think I have, there we go. And let me go to this. And Ruth, you're gonna take over the screen share. So please uh, welcome to the audience, Ruth, and uh, please unmute yourself and uh, present. You're starting to share? No, you are. I am. Okay. So uh, this is the one. And I will share it. How do I show it so you can see it one at a time? Well, you said I don't know. Okay, let me do it for you. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. Good evening, everyone. And thank you to the speakers who have come before me. You all tell such interesting and different stories. So that's really lovely. And of course, I'm talking to you from Haifa, Israel. The background that you see is essentially what I see from my uh, house. And I've been here for nearly 53 years. Uh, I spent a few years in America, was married to an American uh, man. I have six children, 21 grandchildren and 12 great-grandchildren, and there are more coming all the time, so I lose count a little bit. Uh, I have turned to writing after doing all kinds of other things, mostly academic stuff and uh, research. But at some point, what happened was I don't see any uh, screen sharing, Jeffrey. Okay, well, I'm just having you talk to us. If you want me to start to, speak. I would like you to start it. Okay. I'm not going. To, I'm not going to talk to you as much uh, about the book, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What I want to tell you, especially, is what happened after I wrote the book. Now, my my story, uh, "Land of Many Bridges," was originally written. That leave it there was originally written uh, in Hebrew. And it was a book that I wrote mostly for my children. Since I wanted them to be able to understand it, uh, I wrote it in Hebrew. And pretty soon I realized it, it was quite successful here, it was sold out. Uh, I got a lot of interesting uh, responses to it. And I realized that actually uh, I wanted my family in Holland to read it as well. So I translated it into Dutch, kind of lackadaisically like that. And uh, from there, it moved on to into a Dutch version and from the Dutch version into an English one. But I will start like this. What happens when a person picks up a pen or a computer and starts writing? And I think this is what happens, like this poem. It's a poem I wrote for my first book. It was a book of poems. It's called Facts of Life. I threw a stone in the water and watched the ripples dance a pirouette of grace when fleetingly I left my mark upon the stoic surface of the wet domain where mermaids dwell and sirens sing. Then the ripples moved beyond my reach and where the stone had been, there was no memory and those far ripples did not know whence they had come. Because once you write a book, it's out there and everything that happens as a result is either luck or panache or whatever it is. Next slide, please. So if Jeffrey is, yes, thank you. These are the stones that I have thrown into the water. And you can see the Hebrew version, you can see the Dutch version, and you can see the English one. The, the book is uh, covered 
in what was the wrapping paper of my father's store. Oh, and the last one, the one with the two girls on it is a fictional story, also a Sha'a story, but uh, I'm working on the English now, Amsterdam Publishers, the publishers of my Dutch, my English book are uh, uh, interested in it as well. Uh, the Dutch book was sold out very quickly. It's in a, a next printing, maybe third printing by now. And even the book in English, it's doing nicely. So I hope you go to Amazon or any of the internet stores and uh, get a copy. And if you really want the Hebrew one, I can take care of that for you. Now, I was born in a small village in the east of the Netherlands. And my parents had lived there before the war. My father was born there. My mother came from a neighboring village. And before the war, there was a small Jewish community there. Not so unusual for the Netherlands, where there were lots of small Jewish community of people who kept the commandments. They had a little synagogue, they had a cemetery, they had a kosher butcher, and they got along. Nevedal, the village where I was born, uh, was exactly the same. But after the war, my parents were the only family that returned in, you know, the euphemism. And somehow they stayed there. In the beginning, perhaps they thought that people would come back. But in the final analysis, they got stuck. I was born. My little sister was born. And somehow they made a life there. My father had big, big store, big business. You can go to the next slide. My father ran uh, a textile store. He was quite successful. He was quite well known uh, in the village. He was very uh, active in public life, also before the war and also again after it. What I'm showing you here is one of the things that happened after uh, the book was written. I received an email from someone I had never heard of who, who wrote to my publisher essentially in Holland and asked for my email address. And he turned out to be the grandson of one of the people who had been instrumental in rescuing both my parents and also my older sister. And he didn't really know any of the story of his grandfathers. His grandfather was a, a Protestant pastor whose name was Abraham Heymans. He came from Jewish uh, stock. His great-grandfather had been Jewish. And so Bram and I are now about to start some kind of a cooperation uh, to work on his grandfather's story. And what I told him about it uh, helped him a lot along the way. So we spoke and we wrote together. Uh, his grandfather was eventually was awarded posthumously uh, righteous gentile. My sister, my big sister Leah, she took care of that. Next slide, please. Another thing that happened, can you move to the next slide, Jeffrey? Another thing that happened was in my village, like in all of the Netherlands, very little attention is paid to teaching the Holocaust. The Shoah is not something that is talked about. There are very few Jews in Holland today. Before the war, there were 140,000 Jews. After the war, there were barely 30,000. 75% of Dutch Jewry was murdered. And most of the villages, like the one where I was born, which had small communities, have no Jews anymore. And so the, the generation that is growing up now, 75 years later, has no inkling of the fact that there were ever any Jews there. But 
as a result of my book and also some other things, somebody decided that the Shoah must be taught and a curriculum was written for high school and also for elementary school, but for high school especially, where the children study World War II history, Shoah in general in the Netherlands, and they get a special focus on what happened in their area. And my book is uh, uh, required reading for that particular course. So I go to Holland twice a, twice a year to visit my sister, who's almost 83. And uh, I'm going soon again. And I was there in February and I had been invited to give a talk to the children. So here you can see me talking to a group of uh, 11th graders. They asked questions, they wrote to me. Uh, they asked questions about the book. They asked questions about the history. I, I gave them a lecture about how the Jews came to Europe, starting with the destruction of the Second Temple, going through uh, um, the exile into uh, Europe and afterwards coming to Spain and the expulsion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the phenomenon of Jewish pirates, which interested them a lot, and they were excited about that. And uh, I gave them a whole different view of how, how Jews even live in all the different countries in the world. And uh, they wrote to me afterwards, and I'm going again next month, and I expect to see them again and talk to them again. Maybe not them, because they're graduating, but the next group. Can I have the uh, next slide, please? One thing that happened, which totally blew me away, was uh, when somebody from the municipality wrote to me in April and asked me if I had memories of uh, Dutch Memorial Day. In Holland, like in Israel, Memorial Day and Independence Day are one day after the other. Uh, in Holland, the celebration is liberation from uh, Nazi Germany. And on May 4th, there is Memorial Day when all kinds of sad things happen. And on May 5th, they celebrate uh, liberation. On May 4th, in most places in the Netherlands, people walk in a silent march to the local monument and they put their flowers and they have talks and they, they remember the people mostly from the resistance. And they asked me what my memory was. So I wrote them, honestly, that my father boycotted uh, May 4th because he said, when we go to the monument, nobody ever says anything about the Jews. His parents, his sister, his uncles, his aunts, his cousins, my mother's parents, brothers, sisters. I mean, like, I don't know, 50 people from the immediate family that were murdered, mostly in Sobibo. And so, uh, this year they wrote to me after we had this talk with a representative of the local uh, government. They told me that on May 4th, at the official site of the monument, all the names of the Jews from the village who were victims of the Shoah were read out loud. And the students from the high school, each of them had the job of saying something about every single person that had been murdered. So I felt that I had done something amazing and I was really, really grateful to that, for that. 
I'm sure my father was very happy and proud of me too. The picture that you see here is another thing. I don't know if you know what it is, but it's a measuring stick. My grandfather and my father had a textile store and among other things, they sold yard goods. This is half a meter. Uh, I have the one from my father's store in my workroom hanging on the wall over there. Uh, this one came to me when the people who had bought uh, my mother's house, after my father died, uh, we sold the store and my mother moved into a smaller house. And when she was no longer able to live at home, uh, my sisters cleaned out the house and after my mother died, uh, they, 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 we sold it. But uh, I hadn't really been there. When I was in, in Holland in February with my youngest daughter, I told her I wanted to show her the house where I was born. We'd spend the day in the village. And then nobody answered the bell. So with a little chutzpah, I told her, we'll go around the back and we'll see what we can see. And I was standing there and I said, you see, this is the garden. This is the shed. I used to climb on it. And somebody walked out and said, <coughs> hello, uh, what are you doing in my backyard kind of a thing? So I said, I'm so sorry, but my name is Bela Samuel. And I was born in this house and this is my daughter and we're here from Israel. Oh, you got to come in, you get coffee and et cetera, et cetera. And then he told me uh, that lately they have been cleaning out the cellar and they found some things that he sure belonged to my family. And he came up with this and with another thing. You can turn to the next uh, slide already. This was the measuring stick for my grandfather's uh, house. I touched something that my grandfather's living hands had touched that I was so overwhelmed that it took me a while to calm down. He insisted that I take this home with me, even though I told the family living in the house, they bought the house, everything in it belongs to them. It's, uh, you know, anyway, they insisted and they also gave me, I don't know if you can see it. Uh, this is the serviette ring a silver serviette ring. This one I had, it belonged to my grandfather. It says for father and there was from 1933. But this one they found in the house and on it, it says Betty. Betty was my father's sister. She was murdered in Sobibor when she was 36 years old. She refused to leave her parents. She refused to go into hiding. My father tried to convince her and she didn't and I have, Two names, Bela Betsy. My middle name was after her. Ruth is my Hebrew name. Long story, many names. So they gave this to me. And I, I think that's just amazing. Now, recently, they wrote to me that they cleaned out another corner. And after they read my book, they realized that the things they found there also belonged to the family. They found my mother's silver candlesticks. And they found the Haladekel that my mother had made herself. And she said the holodeckle, she didn't know what it was, but she used it for birthdays to put it over the cake. So it wasn't even that far from the mark. And now that I'm going next month, she told me to come and visit and she will give me those items. My mother's silver candlesticks, imagine. And it was probably a gift that she got from her mother. So I'm going to give it to the next 
grandchild of mine who will get married. I have many older grandchildren already, and I will take care of it that it will be in use and it will be a living kind of candlesticks. But she realized what it was after reading the book, because the book talks about the Jewish artifacts. Now, I'll, I'll take a minute and read something small. I had not planned on doing that. Uh, this is a small, small excerpt uh, uh, about the moment when my parents realize that they have to go into hiding and they cannot go into hiding with their children. So they have made arrangements with the underground uh, to smuggle the children away. My older sister was four years old. My younger sister was two years old at the time. And this is about my older sister, Louise. The person talking is my father. I take a deep breath. This is the last night with our little girl under our roof. And who knows for how long? But I suppress those thoughts. I must be practical. Stay in the now only. I have to give my child strength. Give her courage. Give her something to hold on to. A story? I ask her in my normal father voice. And I wink because she loves when I do that. I try to appear relaxed. Louise answers quickly, Papa, Papa, tell me already. And she leans against me in absolute trust. Her intensely blue eyes boring to mine. She has my eyes and she also smells, smiles the way I do, a little crooked like that. Louise is a slender child and tall for her age. She is a sweet little girl, a little sickly at times. And I worry that she will have enough, have enough to eat and drink where she is going. But I push those thoughts away. Again, I look at my daughter. She is wearing the pajamas that Batya sewed for her from an old flannel nightgown. One for Louise, one for Marianne. I swallow my fears for now and lean over this little girl, perhaps for the very last time. I begin to tell her a story so old that my father told it to me and which he heard from his father and so on and so forth. It is a story half in Dutch, half in Yiddish. I gave her this story as an anchor to make her a link in our chain of generations. And the next day she disappears into the underground. So uh, the story is about all the different people. I try to give the people themselves an option to talk. Can you turn to the next uh, slide, please? And uh, here you see, uh, they gave me the three on the left uh, serviette rings. The other two, I don't know why they think they belong to me, but they insisted I take them and they were silver plates, so I didn't feel bad about it. Next slide, please. But it is amazing. And I gave them a place of honor in my uh, vitrine. Now, Another thing that happened, this is me during an interview. And I think this is perhaps another outcome of the book. Uh, since the municipality uh, did not do a very good job of receiving my father back into the fold after the war and gave him a very hard time uh, in trying to get back his house, the house of his parents, his possessions, uh, the things that were in the house, the inventory. It took him from 1945 to 1963 to finish that entire project, that whole process. And 
So he, he was very angry with, with the municipality and with the people. The mayor of the town, the village that was there during the war was the same mayor that was there after the war. So he couldn't claim that he didn't know what had happened. As a result of my book and some pressure on uh, the local government, 5 million euro was set aside by, by the municipality of my town for an investigation into the fate of Jewish possessions in my village. And especially they wanted to check whether the people who were part of the local government had been involved in buying or selling or stealing uh, some of these, uh, this, these possessions, the real estate or the, the things that were in the house. Um, during the process, the, the, the process was carried out by the University of Nijmegen, so uh, a completely uninterested party, who, which had absolutely nothing to do with the municipality and had nothing to do with us either. They interviewed me several times and they asked me what I wanted. And I told them, I have no material needs. I don't need, I don't want anything. What I want is justice. What I want is for the municipality say to say that they're sorry. And so the, um, the final, um, the, the final, what do you call that? The result of the investigation is there and the municipality has agreed that in the opening page, the introduction to the, to the investigation, it will say that my father was treated very, very badly by the authorities. So when I go to Holland, I will, get, I will bring this thing with me and I will put it on his grave. And since the stone is sagging, I can probably stick it in there. So uh, these are all things, I need the next slide, please. These are all things that happened as a result of uh, writing a book. Now, the book is in, in English now, and I thank uh, Amsterdam publishers Lisbeth for doing that. Uh, it, it earned uh, a first prize, a gold medal in a, in a competition last year, so that's very nice. It's selling nicely. I hope as a result of this evening, it'll sell even better. Now I will show you a few pictures uh, from the past, people who may be uh, nice and, uh, how shall we say, innocent times. My grandfather was a shaykhet, a ritual slaughterer. And the person on the left is my grandfather, uh, Daniel Pachach, not my father's father, my mother's father. The little girl's my mother. And I have a daughter who it could be her clone, looks so much like her. And next to her is her mother, um, Mariana. And one of my sisters was named after her. And I also named the daughter uh, after her. It, the year is 1920. You see my mother's wearing wooden shoes. In the background, you see the name, Dave Daniels, Fleisauer, uh, butcher. He had a kosher butcher, and he, he sent a kosher meat throughout the country. Next slide, please. My grandfather was one of seven brothers and sisters. My grandmother had a huge family. My father's family was also very big. No one came back. One of my mother's aunts and uncles, a married couple returned, but all the other six families in all with children and grandchildren, 37 on my mother's side only, 
uh, close family were all murdered, mostly in Sobibor. This is my parents' wedding photo in 1937, when clouds were already gathering over Europe, but uh, they were still hopeful that things might be okay. Uh, next slide, please. My father, as I told you, was uh, very involved in public life, also before and also after the war. And the fact that he was like that is what, what, what saved my family. This is my grandmother, Mariana. I never knew her. In 1941, with my older sister, not my big sister, number two sister, Mariana, named for her. That's the only photo I have of, uh, of my grandmother holding a child. And the next slide is a picture of my grandfather, her husband, Daniel, the butcher, the chagret, uh, with my sister, Louise, who is uh, about three years old, maybe two years old over there. My father, you can put on the next slide, my father had many connections in the business world and he was connected. I'm sorry, it's in Hebrew. That's my big sister who died and I wanted to give her, uh, I wanted to bring her to you the way she was, not only as a baby. My father was connected to a group of Jews in a nearby city called Enschede. Holland had only one Jewish council, a Judenrat. And the Jewish council in Amsterdam, they were the ones who told different groups in different towns, how to act with the Jews living in their community. The Amsterdam Judenrat was of the opinion that you had to do exactly what the Germans wanted in the hope that if you did that, you would survive. But in the neighboring town where we lived was a, uh, a representative of the Amsterdam Judenrat somebody called Menko, Mr. Menko, Sigmund Menko, a big industrialist. And he, he believed that the Jews had to go into hiding. And my father was connected to this Mr. Menko. And together they made uh, plans to try and find safe houses, safe houses for the Jews. Enschede managed to rescue about 50% of its Jewish uh, community whereas in the rest of Holland, 75% of all the Jews were murdered. The highest percentage in Western Europe. And in my village, 50% survived. Like, and that was mostly my father's doing with the cooperation of the uh, Dutch Reformed Church of a group called Overda. Next, uh, next uh, slide, please. Of a group called Overdan which uh, allowed the Jews to find safe havens and also supplied them with food stamps and, and food and et cetera, et cetera, everything that needed to be done in order to ensure their survival. This is an old photo, photo of my aunt, Bela, the one I am named for, at the Korovbal game. Korovbal is a kind of basketball, except it's played with a much bigger basket, much higher one. And as you see, the girls played in uh, skirts. My aunt is the one on the right. She was my mother's younger daughter. She left a diary, which helped me a lot in the writing of the book. And my sisters told me I should have it because I am named for her. Can I have the next slide, please? 
Next slide, Jeffrey, thank you. These are my parents in the good old days, 1940, 1938, firstborn child, 1940. My mother is uh, pregnant, the war has already started. Uh, I don't wanna tell you exactly how my second sister came into the world, because I don't wanna ruin it for you when you read the book, but the Jews were so trapped in this unbelievable mousetrap, they, they had no place to go. And so they, they didn't want to bring children in the world, but in the final analysis, my second sister was born and they also found a place, a safe place uh, to hide them. The doctor who brought her into the world, who convinced my mother not to have the miscarriage, the abortion, uh, he is the one who saved her. He promised and he did. Can I have the next slide, please? Okay, this is a sample of food stamps, but because everybody had to bring these kind of things with them when they bought stuff, they were not money. They were just allotments. You were only allowed so and so much bread every week, so and so many potatoes every week, so much clothing, et cetera, et cetera. And if you did, and you were given the amount based on the size of your family. Since the Jews were not allowed to be alive anymore, were not allowed to stay there after a certain date, uh, they didn't have stamps. So the underground had to supply the Jews with uh, stamps. Most of the, one of the biggest industries of the underground in Holland was producing uh, um, counterfeit food stamps. And there were probably more counterfeit food stamps in circulation than real ones. And that's what kept the Jews hidden in Holland uh, alive. Next uh, slide, please. Uh, the next slide should show, show you an ad from my father's store. He wrote an advertisement in the local newspaper every single week. But if you look here, can you on the bottom, there is a hand. Can you see that? This is already a note to his customers saying, please bring your textile stamps with you according to law when you come and shop in the store. And this was in 1940 and Holland was invaded in May, but by summer, the stamps were already a requirement. Can I have uh, the next slide, please? Okay, next, next, next. Thank you. One of the things that the a helped me with the book was the local uh, archive in the village. And the local archive in the village uh, didn't even know that they had everything that they, that they had. One day I got a letter. I, I knew about these people. I was trying to research the book. And uh, one of the people said that he had some letters my father wrote in the archive. And then he sent me this letter asking me if I knew what it was, it had fallen out of a book that he had inherited. And I looked at it and I nearly died. It's a letter to say from, from the German uh, police to the police in the village to say that these and these Jews have been deported and these and these Jews, meaning my father, my mother, my two sisters, did not show up and they are criminals and they must be arrested. And 
I wrote back to the person who, who, who managed the archive and I told him what it was. So he said, oh, I'll go look. And he sent me about a hundred documents, which were the, the underlying uh, information that I used to write the book in such a way that it is historically correct without making it hopefully into a dry uh, academic piece of work. Can I have the next one, please? And that is also the reason why I gave you access to my uh, uh, website because I translated everything into English. I did that for Barilan University. I'm a, a, a research, um, what do you call that in English? A research fellow at Barilan University in the Department of Shoah Research and Memory. And so uh, I did it for them so researchers can go into it, but it might be interesting for you to see. These are again, one letter in German, one letter in Dutch, uh, signed by the mayor of the village. You see the same signature on the bottom to say, these people have disappeared. They didn't come. They didn't leave the key to their house. Where are they? Because my parents disappeared and some other people disappeared as well. Next slide, please. And the next slide, you will see a, a photo of 1942, the deportation of the Jews from the holding camp in Westerbork to the east, mostly to Sobibor. Most Jews were murdered in Sobibor until by the end of 1943 when they, the inmates themselves uh, revolted and uh, destroyed the crematoria. I don't know if you can understand this, but there is no yelling and screaming and crying and there were no hundreds of police with whips and dogs. It's all so neatly organized. The Jews got letters. You have to come at this and this time. And they did. Look at all the packages left on the side. But nobody's complaining. There's a couple here in the front on the right side playing with their little girl. And they'll be dead in three days from now. It's unbelievable to me that they kept thinking until the last minute, as they're stepping into cattle trains, that they were going to survive. 75% of Dutch Jewry. Uh, there was nobody my age almost in Holland. Can I have the next slide, please? I should say that even though my parents were the only Jewish family, I was raised in a kosher household. Shomashavas, my father closed his store on Shabbat. I am, I am an observant Jew also today. This is my sister, Louise, with uh, her two foster sisters uh, when she first arrived at the Bemela family in Nijmegen, where she stayed for a while and then she had to move somewhere else. Don't think that if a person found a safe house, that he was able to stay there for the entire duration. She moved to about 12 different families, back and forth, back and forth, because and she was four years old at the time. At the end of the war, she was severely malnourished, Holland had a hunger winter, and she suffered from asthma, which is something that stayed with her the rest of her life. If you look, you can see that she's hysterical. Take a look at this poor little girl, so pretty. That's the little girl my father read the story to. Uh, can I have the next slide, please? 
And the next slide deals, shows you the distance from my village to Nijmegen, where she was. It, today, it's a two-hour train ride. I don't know how long it took then, maybe three hours. They gave her some tea to drink with something in it. She fell asleep. Not my parents. They didn't take her. A friend of my father took her. All of them in great danger to themselves. The book is quite uh, um, specific in on telling the story of her disappearance into the underground. Next slide, please. The next slide shows you my other sister, the one who lives in Holland, Mariana. On the left is the two of them. It's a studio photo uh, from the good times. The one in the middle is Mariana in 1943. And this photo was made to send to my parents in their hiding place to show them that their little girl was alive and well. Now, of course, the parents, people hiding her didn't know my parents were. They simply handed the picture to the underground somehow and couriers took the picture from place to place to place to place by bicycle. Traveling, it was a two hour train ride. So by bicycle, a whole day. Bicycles didn't have rubber tires anymore. They had wooden tires or no tires. They rode on the rims. So you can imagine how hard it was. This picture reached my parents at the end of 1943. And so they knew she was alive. And the picture on the right, uh, you can see Nanny a year later in 1944. Can you see that her hair is blonde? Because where she was staying, most people were light-haired. And so the family that took care of her bleached her hair every week. Every week they poured peroxide over the roots of her hair. Because you can see that her hair is very black. But on the right, she's uh, blonde. And the dress she is wearing, my mother knitted for her during her uh, time in hiding. Because when she got the picture, the one in the middle, she knew my sister was alive. Well, I wasn't there yet, but she knew Mariana was alive. And she knitted a dress for her. And they took a photo in 1944, and the dress fit beautifully. And there she is looking very well taken care of, quite happy with blonde hair. Next slide, please. Okay. These are the people who saved my parents, the Schaeffer family. Them too, I was able, I did that together with their daughter, the one on the left. Uh, uh, I was able to get them uh, recognized by Yad Vashem as righteous Gentiles. And if you look carefully at the children, the younger ones and the girl in the middle, they're all wearing sweaters and the one at the girl on the left, Henny, even wearing a skirt that my mother knitted for them. Henny told me that. Now of this family, the older ones were all in the resistance. These people saved Jews. They, they hit uh, Air Force pilots who had uh, been down from their planes. Uh, after the war, they moved to Canada, but I, I remember them quite well. They lived next door to my school and I was in first grade. I called them uncle and aunt. My father called them papa and mama. And my father told me that if it was, if I needed shelter, I should run to them. I was a six-year-old girl and I understood that if it rains, I should run to them. So I did. In Holland, it rained a lot. 
So I used to run to them. I said, Papa told me to come and shelter. And they would laugh at me and give me a fresh baked uh, scone because they were bakers. And I would go home. Can I have the next one, please? They moved to Canada. And I found out much, much later, this is Domine Haymans. It's a very poor photograph. I will ask his grandson if he has a better one. He is the one who initially took in my parents. And his story is a very interesting one. But again, it's in the book. Uh, and he is a righteous Gentile also. Can I have the next slide, please? Okay, and the next slide that shows the distance by train. I just thought I'd show you. Uh, and this is the postcard that my father writes to the Decker family that rescued my sister Mariana after the war. I don't know if you can see the date, but it's in May 1945. They were, um, they were liberated in April. And he tells them, thank you very much. And he, he writes a very moving uh, note. But he also says that she keeps asking when she's going home to her mommy and daddy and her brothers because she had lived with the Decker family for nearly two years. And it was very strange for her to, to come back to my family, to my parents and, and my older sister, of course. But eventually they all settled. My father writes, I will never forget the wonderful thing that you did for us. The wonderful thing that they did was not only that they took in the child and that they kept her safe and that they took very good care of her, but that they gave her back because it was not in Holland. There was a very big problem after the war. The Dutch government in exile had told people hiding the children that the parents were not necessarily entitled automatically to the children back. And especially if the parents had died, were murdered, other relatives who would come and ask for the child, they had no special rights anymore. And there was even a thing to say that they had abandoned their children. It took a while for, for the Dutch Jews to get the, the children back into uh, the Jewish community. Some of them never did. And some of them had lives that were completely ruined because of it, because it took so long. Can I have the next slide? So my children, my sisters were very lucky that they had parents who came looking for them. This is the opening of the store after the winter, after the war. Not my, my father's store, his father's store, because our store had been bombed and so it couldn't open. The two, you see the policeman on the left, next to him is uh, a gentleman, Meneer van der Berg, Next to him is my father, Meneer van der Berg, also rescued Jews during the war. The, the demand for clothing was so great that the police had to come to keep order and people were waiting their turn to go inside. And what they were selling was surplus goods that the Canadian soldiers had given them, the Jewish Canadian soldiers. I have a Haggadah for Passover that was uh, printed by the Allied forces. And the first Seder after the war, my parents celebrated with two Jewish soldiers that were ported in their house and they left them the Haggadah. And this year we used it for our Seder because I just now got it. And uh, we used it for our Seder. So 
I tried to make like the circle. Oh, next slide, please. We're almost done. I think we're done. You can move very quickly through these. These are my parents with my two sisters the summer after the war. This is us in 48, Rega. Uh, this is the opening of the store. It took to go back one, the Lochashuk steps up. It took till 1949 to set up the store again. 1949, four years, because my father could not get back ownership of the of the building. And it took till 1949. Think about it. Four years where he didn't really have the opportunity to run his own business yet. Almost four children by then. Okay, keep going, please. Later, we moved to a very big place. This is us in 1951. Keep moving. Okay, this is a death notice that comes from the Dutch government. And they only start coming in the 50s to let him know he was the only survivor of the family. This is a cousin of his who died, who was 25 years old, uh, and one of them near, near Auschwitz. And one by one, these things started coming. Go on, go on. Okay, this is all of us. This is a photo taken for the Schaeffer family, the rescuers of my parents. We're wearing clothes that my mother sewed for us. We're all wearing the same, can you see? Okay, so my little sister was blonde and my mother was so happy because she figured that if Hitler comes back and she was sure he would, it would be easy to hide her. Like my hair was very black and she worried about that. I was also, I didn't listen. So she was worried that nobody would want to hide me. This is what I grew up with. No wonder I live in Israel. Next uh, slide, please. Okay, this is us in the backyard, the new house, the grass hasn't grown in yet. And this again is a Susan to the Schaeffer family in, in uh, Canada. You can still see my sister is uh, sick with asthma. And if you look on the left, my father and I, hand in hand, this is how I remember him. I was always with him. I loved the store. I enjoyed going out with him when he went to buy goods for the store to sell. I listened to his stories. He didn't talk about the Shoah, but little by little, there were things that I, I heard from far away. I don't know if I have time, I think not, so I won't read the next thing. Can we just finish the uh, presentation then? Okay, keep going, it's not important. It's uh, Jewish children after the war. This, this is important. This is my piano. And these are the photos of my third and fourth generation. And my children say that my piano is too small. I have to buy a grand piano. And uh, there's no room for all the pictures, Baruch Hashem. And so you can see children, grandchildren, keep going. Okay, here are some more pictures. The one on top is my daughter. She just had her third baby. And there she is with two of them. Uh, they don't keep up with up-to-date ones. Next slide, please. You see, okay, move through it. All this, you can see that I can't put it all in one. Baruch Hashem, very big family. Keep going. And this is us five years ago. Since then, we have uh, grown. But this is at a Hanukkah party at my son's house. 
he's listening in and in the dining room. And these are most of my children. One of them is outside at the barbecue. Most of my grandchildren, but since then others are born. They have grown up. They have gotten married. They have had more babies. Can I have the next one? And this is this is the future children. This this is the fourth generation. And if I have to say anything, I will say what my son-in-law's grandmother. Hungarian grandmother used to say, she wouldn't say Mazeltov when a child was born. She would say, we won. And here we are, and we won. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you will look up my book and enjoy reading it and learn from it. Thank you very, very much. Very nice. Hold on one second. Okay. Well. Uh, Ruth, it was beautiful, and it was terrific for you to um, bring a survivor's view to our group. The eyewitness testimony is uh, something that is recorded today and will be used for pushing back about Holocaust denial and against anti-Semitism. And I'm so honored and appreciate you being here with us, and I appreciate you. So does Thank you very much. Community. Thank you all for listening. And I will now open the audience participation of the of, of our program for any questions to the three authors, Ruth, Rob, and Jenna. And if you don't mind, if you please uh, would use the, uh, I'm gonna switch to the gallery view now. At the very bottom of your toolbar, you'll see a reactions button. And if you raise your hand, which is what I've just done over here, You'll be, I'll be able to see you easily. And if you have a question, I would also appreciate all of you if you would put your um, cameras on so we can see you. There's a lot of people who are here but are not on camera. So is there any questions for our uh, authors at the moment? Please raise your hand if you do. And unmute. Okay, Douglas, nice to meet you. Nice to see you. Why don't you ask your questions, please? Let us know who you want to have your question. Uh, a, a question for my neighbor, although I never knew him while we were neighbors, uh, Rob Wolf. Uh, we grew up in the same hometown. I'm a, I'm a bit older, so our paths never crossed, but we lived remarkably close to one another. Um, I want to ask you a specific question about your book. Um, you, you say in the book, you give you go to great detail, and it's very personal of, of your of your father's parents being shipped off to Auschwitz. How did your father learn of that? Somebody must have witnessed it and told him. They did. If you remember, very it's nice a very, very. Oh, can you hear me? Yep. It, very nice. Okay. If you remember, yeah. it was a very small yeah. part. My my dad yeah, was, old. you know, first okay. of all, my dad was on the run for months after the war had ended, uh, at least in Budapest, because it hadn't ended in Jur yet. So he it wasn't safe to go back to his hometown of Jur. And then when he finally got it, he, he looked for notices for weeks. He went, you know, there was a lost and found uh, sort of in the town square, if I remember correctly. I'm just trying to picture it because it's the way he described it. By the way, my book is based on his autobiography written in the 1970s. And he wrote, he and my mom wrote the stories 
literally as though they'd happened the previous day. So uh, literally pencil and paper to typewriter to computer to disk to me. But uh, yeah, uh, they had a neighbor that uh, found him months after they had after he got back and was working and the war had ended and looking, looking, looking fervently to find out what had happened. And he found an, an elderly lady that was actually in Auschwitz and she was an eyewitness to what had happened to my mom and dad. And uh, she told him exactly what happened that uh, not my mom and dad, but my dad's parents, sorry. And uh, yeah, his, uh, you know, I don't want to spoil all of the book, but uh, yeah, his mom, uh, uh, my, my dad's mom was uh, pretty much perished almost immediately, which a high percentage of Jewish people uh, were, you know, as soon as they got there, they, they were taken away and, and murdered, unfortunately. Uh, along with a little girl, if you remember, they were, she hooked up with an orphan, a, a little girl on the train. So, and uh, my dad's father, um, well, the initial story, he mentions Mengele, and it might have been Mengele, it might, have, it might not have been, it's been sort of disputed by another historian. So we sort of left Mengele out of the, uh, out of the pitch, out of the book, because we weren't quite sure. But in my dad's, uh, in my dad's uh, story, they said Mengele was the one who greeted him, and, and as a physician, uh, Joseph, my dad's father, mentioned that he was a physician and how could he help at the camp? And he got assigned cleaning out the, the stool, cleaning out the latrines, if you were, cleaning out the, uh, the waste from, the, uh, from all the, uh, the huts and uh, end up perishing about a week later, uh, probably by cholera. They, they assumed it was uh, infectious. So, you know, it's sad that they had to go, but the, the good news, they didn't have to suffer for months at a time. You know, we've talked about starvation today, torture, uh, persecution. So fortunately, uh, they didn't have to undergo that. And this witness mentioned uh, other people that were at the at Auschwitz, like Zoli the Clown, who was a childhood hero of my father's, and, and what happened with him, the humiliation, and, and, and at least one rabbi, the humiliation that happened to him. So it, it sounded pretty legitimate. I mean, you get the word of mouth, and, and believe me, my parents were, were educators. They were, uh, they were sharp. They, were, they had uh, uh, impenetrable memories. And we, if, if that's what, if dad said that that's what happened, then that's what happened. So yeah, eyewitness testimonial by a, an elderly lady that happened to find my dad injured as he was desperately trying to find out what, what his parents' whereabouts and and uh, and what had happened to him. And, and fortunately, so that's how yeah, it was word of mouth from, an, from another lady who knew my dad. So Jackie, I saw that you had your hand raised. So please unmute yourself. Nice. I, I took it down because it was very personal, but I want to say to Robert Wolf, I was with you every word that you pronounce and the congratulations on your book. And I was in your living room due to the art that you have behind you, the Millet, Les Glaneurs. I grew up with that and I thought, this is coming from Tunisia in 1933 and here we are with wow. Jeff helping us to get together. That means it was emotional well, I, and I thought, no, <laughs> I don't need to say yeah, anything. When my, my parents passed away and we, we had an estate sale, but there were so many things I couldn't throw away or sell. And this painting was in my dad's office for many years. And I never really came to understand the meaning or how deep this painting was, except to say that the peasants in one way or another helped the, uh, the, the, labor, the laborers survive. They, they had a, some sort of deal with whatever little... Uh, and women of money they might have had exchanged or even out of and out of mercy the uh, the peasants maybe even a little bit of work they snuck out at night and, and dealt with the peasants all and all at risk for their own their own safety and their own and lives. it's about women just to eat a minimum amount of food uh, one side, one side yeah, I, story I think... my dad got food poisoning probably from uh, contaminated cow milk and that might have saved his life because he ended up in a hospital 
uh, it was a weird story. Some, I don't know, it was a sister of charity. It was a nun, some kind of a, of a, of a lady that uh, was just happened to be in the neighborhood and said, this man is ill. He's got food poisoning. You've got to get him to a hospital. So my dad ended up in a hospital where he was treated not so nicely since he was Jewish, but uh, they went on another march that he caught uh, towards the, the middle and the end of and uh, led to his first escape. But uh, that just being having food poisoning, ironically, may have saved his life because he was off off campus and it might have saved him from a, a ultimate death march that he may not have escaped from. So crazy story too. So, but yeah, the peasants, it's a very meaningful, as long as I'm around that's staying up there and hopefully my grandkids understand that, that that painting, as long as it's well-preserved, the peasants in the field, it just means uh, it's the most simplistic uh, painting, but it's so beautiful, comes from his heart. And, and it really the memories of saving his life just for the need for food is, is, it's a big, it's a big message. I was sitting on your red chair behind you. <laughs> you're welcome to come visit. If you're ever in the Lauderdale <laughs> area, anybody come visit. We'll go get some lunch, coffee, and we'll continue this Thank conversation. You. Thank you, Doug Jeffrey. And I talk for hours probably when I'm in Michigan. In no, but we don't realize the connection that we can create, how the, the world of together can happen. You know, my parents, the um, in a sense, not Holocaust survivor. They had a life which was okay in 1942, even if we were in Tunisia with the Germans. And here, so many years later, you can see the, the symbol of togetherness and learning and education. And uh, it touches me, it touches us. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> any other, are there any other questions? Um, well, I have. Uh, something special that I have teed up. Obviously, they were at the end of the program, uh, and you're welcome to uh, leave us, but a lot of people know that I have a passion for film, and I have now uh, fell in love with uh, this genre of Jewish and Holocaust film. I've watched over 600 films in this genre, and I have selected uh, one, which I think you'll all enjoy. So I'm going to take the next half hour uh, of our time. You're welcome to uh, leave us if you're not interested in staying, but I think you'll enjoy uh, this film. So I'm going to share a screen and go to that right now. Jeffrey, I will say good night. It's 10 o'clock here by now. Yes. And I have to get up at six. So good night. Thank, thank you. Thank you very, very, very much. Thank you. And we'll stay okay. in touch. We'll I'm very happy to. Thank you Jeff? for joining us. Jeff, can I ask one quick question of the other two authors? Yes. Okay. Jeff, may I ask one question of the other two authors real quick? Of course, go. Jenna and Ruth, um, I, maybe I missed it. How many kids do you each have in total and grandkids? Because I might have missed it and I apologize for that, but. So I said I have six children and I have 21 grandchildren and 12 uh, great-grandchildren. Oh, God bless. Are they, they all in all Israel? They all sit in my house. Yes, both of them. Are they all, all in Israel? Israel? Yes, yes, They're yes. All in Israel. We are in a, a family of observant Jews. I have two rabbis in my family, a couple of agnostics, and all kinds. But uh, yes, Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem, indeed. How about you, Jenna? I have one son. I talk about him quite a bit in Crooked Lines. Um, and uh, he is the dad, very new dad, of a two-year-old and a one-month-old. So, oh, so we are very new 
uh, Savta and Saba and very excited. Mazel tov. Thanks, Mazel tov. Welcome to the group, to the crowd, to the club. Thank you. To the club. I right. have to go. I'm so sorry. Okay. Thank you very, very, very much. Good night. All right, and Devorah, nice to see you. And Devorah is also a Holocaust survivor. So I'm going to uh, start this. You're welcome to stay or leave, but I'm going to share it now. It's about learning to lane. It means driving past Shaw on Shabbat and ducking down so that nobody sees her in the car. It's about learning from the experiences of our ancestors to make the world a better place. It makes me feel safe and secure in a puzzling and scary world. It's about hitting people with the spring onion around the Seder table. <laughs> Years go by, memories fly. Where do they go? Where do they hide? A lifetime of faces forgotten in a blink of an eye. It's having a community, no matter where I am in the world. Remember me, remember my face. I won't be with you for long. But my echo is endless. Just listen and you'll know that I'm here. In a world that is not so far away. When there's food, there's family. When there's family, there's food. Who ate all the smoked salmon? I'm the queen of Knaidla. I will eat them all. <laughs> it's about asking questions and only getting questions back as answers. Converting felt natural and right. From year to year we pass on. The baton of love, wisdom, and hope. Our voices still singing the lullabies of the past. From face to face, and mother to 
constant internal struggle between my godly soul and my animal soul. Judaism for me is welcoming, inclusive and meaningful. my connection to my bubba. She was my favorite person. Thinking anyone who does more than you is Meshuggah Frum. Thinking anyone who does less than you is basically a Gentile. Lighting candles on a Friday night with my wife and children and counting on my blessings. It just means caring. Oh, humor and melodies give us light to find our Any general statement you make about Jews can be disproved by pointing at a different kind of Jew. Court vile amala simply and a portion of chopped liver. I'm proud to be a Jewess from Cochin in Kerala, India. It's about being in a warm bath that I need to keep filling up with lovely hot water. It means sending my children to Gesha so they know who they are. Being compelled to make the world a better place by looking forward, but yet always having to look over your shoulder. It means suffering from catastrophic thinking with specific anxiety that there won't be enough food. It's choosing to live life to the full in spite of almost overwhelming sadness. Developing resilience to shame and learning to love myself. An ancestral Yiddish chorus comments on every slice of colour. And when its members die, you miss them. It's about living a life of ordinary human decency and loving God. It means in the worst of times, he can still laugh. Being Jewish makes me want to stand up and make a difference. It means being part of a past that makes me so grateful to be present. Chicken soup might cure all illnesses, but a bad matzo ball makes a good paperweight. It's keeping this shade on when I'm going for the big shot in tennis. It's the Moroccan customs of my dear wife, Veronique, from couscous on Friday night to a candle by a grave. It means going to Jerusalem for the first time and knowing I'd walk Derby Street. 
Zu seiner Mensch, also wie mein Tatter hat gesucht. Living an honest and fruitful life, loving your neighbor as yourself, meaning everyone. It's one of my strongest connections with my parents, to whom I owe so much, and to those who went before me. Family first, children first, and remembering who you are. Well, I'd call myself Jewish, which is a felicitous way of describing my inherent atheism. We have a duty to fight our corner against anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Man batters himself bloody with his own forehead. From this sense of pain, he deduces that he is alive. The only positive thing I can say is, some of my best friends are rabbis. Being Jewish means that I was witness to one of the most tragic events in history. I observe the festivals in memory of my family and my childhood. Yiddishkeit is ingrained in me. I'm proud to be Jewish, but I wish I wouldn't have to pay such a high price for the privilege. Did we need Hitler to remind us that we are Jews? I thank God daily that I am a Jew. The world does not appreciate what we have contributed to civilization. Ensuring the survival of the diaspora. We had to choose to survive. A Jewish grandmother never sleeps. She just worries with her eyes closed. My mother sang me Yiddish lullabies, almonds and raisins, the sweet and the bitter. This steered me through life. Family, tradition, and celebration of life. The Chaim. I am Jewish. I can prove it with this. It helps us still with living as well as with mourning. Just read the Ten Commandments. It's all there. Being Jewish means that I fought at Cable Street and won. We don't do anything about it, but we don't forget. 
I'm a card-carrying heathen, and I've got all my own gnashes. What does being Jewish mean to me? I don't know. I don't know of any other way. And thank you for staying with me. And I hope you enjoyed what you just said. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, guys. And we'll thank see you. There is no. Have a great summer. Good luck. Uh, there's hope no. You have a uh, stress-free month. Right. There's no program in August. We'll see you again in September on September 10th. For generate for generation the uh, door the door generation upon generation. Thank you all. I love you all. We'll see you. Have a safe summer. Take care. Thank you. you too. Have a great Thank August. You. Thanks.